You're listening to Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show about books, people who read, and how reading at its very best is a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. There is the old philosophical question. If a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, does it make a sound? Likewise, if you read a book and don't discuss it, have you enjoyed all the perks of being a book lover? I'm your host, Amy. I've been a member of numerous book clubs over the last 25 years and started quite a few. I love asking people what they're reading so that they'll ask me the same. I'm a vintage bookseller, a traveler wannabe, and a fanatic about dogs. And I'm your host, Carrie. I'm an English teacher, a freelance writer, a blogger, and the person whose Instagram feed features more photos of my cats than my kids. Each week, we will talk with a guest who shares the love of reading, how they impart that passion, and what books really catch them on fire. We will also tell you about our literary lives, what books are on our nightstands, and other bookish fun. Welcome. Listeners, if you enjoy our podcast, please share it with a friend. If you like what you heard, subscribe and spread the word. And to see extra photos of our guests or bookish events, follow us on Facebook. And just a note, in this episode, you will hear us refer to a book Carrie wants to read that in an earlier episode, she actually reviews. So we want to say that we don't air episodes necessarily in the order that we record them. Do you remember hearing a spooky story around the campfire when you were a kid? If there was a talented storyteller, you may have laughed, cried, or screamed, convinced a ghost was right behind you, sending shivers down your spine. Before printed books were widespread, storytellers were the keepers of all the local history and lore. Today's guest, Bob Thompson, professionally known as Colonel Bob, is a master storyteller and producer of the Corn Island Storytelling Festival, happening on October 19th at Blackacre State Natural Preserve, just outside of Louisville. He's also the author of two short story collections and hosts a radio show, Kentucky Homefront, featuring regional music and storytellers on WFPK 91.9 FM on Saturdays at 8 a.m. Bob Thompson is one busy colonel. Colonel Bob talks to us about how the old guy sitting on his grandmother's front porch spinning yarns sparked his love of stories, what tricks of the trade storytellers use to keep their audience engaged, and why hitchhiking is a big part of his story repertoire. Amy and I are in the studio today with Bob Thompson. You may know him as Colonel Bob, and he is the self-appointed commissioner of Kentucky Front Porches and the producer of the Corn Island Storytelling Festival. He's going to tell us all about his books and his storytelling and the festival. Welcome. Thank you. Colonel Bob, tell us a little bit just about yourself, about your history, where you grew up. I grew up down in western Kentucky. It's the greatest confluence of rivers in the world. Uh, it's where the Ohio hits the Mississippi and um, Tennessee River and the Cumberland River all come in together. And I grew up uh, in a rural farming area right outside of Paducah. And uh, both sides of my brain have always worked. And it really surprised the heck out of me at, at some point when uh, uh, close to graduation, they informed me I was getting a physics scholarship to Murray State University. And it's like, Okay, I'll study physics. Went off to Murray and studied physics for a couple of years and then uh, decided I wanted to be an engineer. I transferred to University of Kentucky and spent three years there and got an engineering degree. And then after that, uh, started working for the University of Kentucky. My first project was I was the engineer responsible for building the football stadium. Oh, wow. Uh, when I went off to college, I was just a, you know, a country kid. And uh, it was, as with most people, I think it 
as much a social education as it was an academic education. First semester, I pledged a military fraternity, Pershing Rifles, and we marched around with chrome-plated 1903 Springfield rifles with bayonets and went to meets all over the country. And and then I pledged a social fraternity. And then, then I transferred to the University of Kentucky. I got an apartment right across the street from what became the counterculture community center uh, and immediately became a hippie. <laughs> and that sort of stuck. <clears throat> and so I've sort of been that ever since. The storytelling, I'm sure, came from a lot of those experiences, but had you always had an interest in storytelling? I guess I did, but that was the beginnings of it because uh, I grew up next door to my grandmother's country grocery store. And by the time I was a year and a half old, I didn't have any grandfathers left. The last one had died. The Ohio River had taken him. So my surrogate grandfathers were the old men that sat on the, the front porch of my grandmother's store uh, in the summertime and around the pot village stove in the wintertime. And uh, they, they knew all my grandfathers, and they told me all the stories of, you know, the depressions and, and going off to Detroit to work and then come back and families and fishing and hunting adventures and their lives, uh, you know, uh, it was just an education for me. And so I guess uh, that and, and I was an only child. These were my best buddies uh, growing up. And by the time I was, you know, 15 or 16, all my best buddies were gone. So it gave me a uh, perspective about the other dimensions, you know, about fragility of life and things like that. And the fact that you can learn something from almost anyone. That combined with the fact that both sides of my brain work so I could understand the engineering aspects of, of things and how things went together and overall concepts. And, and then I could translate that to non-technical people, to salespeople and to customers and things like that. So it, I, what I found was that bridging the gap between the worlds the technical world and the non-technical world was a, a, a saleable commodity. You know, not too many people had that. And so I made a whole career out of doing that, bridging the gaps between the worlds. When you were traveling, when you were young, did you write down the stories or did you just keep them all in your head? What I would do is uh, there are times in, in everybody's life that you run into situations that you don't know why they are, but they're poignant to you. It's like, wow. Maybe I need to think about that or something, and, and, and you don't understand them generally when they happen, and usually you don't understand them until, until a lot of retrospect, and maybe even years later and something else will happen. Well, I'm, I made a point of jotting those things down, just those little instances, even though I didn't understand them, but they were, they were significant to me. And then later, something would happen, and it would put the whole thing in perspective for me, and then I would go back and write a story about it. Now, it may come from the fact that my mother was uh, quite a journalist, a diarist. Her family moved from Paducah, Kentucky, downtown in Paducah, out to the country grocery store where my grandfather had contracted to, to run the grocery, to manage the grocery, on her 13th birthday, on the day that uh, Hitler invaded France. And she started keeping a diary. And she kept a diary every day until uh, she was in her late 80s when um, she started forgetting to write in the diary. So I have a list of, I know every baby toy I had, I know everything that I could possibly imagine, more than I want to know about my youth. 
you know, growing up and everything, a lot of times I'll, I'll find something and I'll go mine her diaries and get the context around something. I'm interested in the concept of the front porch. I know one of your books has that in the title and the radio show that you co-host has it in the title as well. And I think of the front porch as being a, a, something of a bygone era, everybody sitting on their front porch and talking. So I'm curious if you could expand on that. A little. Yeah, everybody sits on the back porch now because the front porch is a little too public for most people. But the front porch of the grocery store was where I got most of my education because uh, that was sort of the male's purview. At that point in the 50s, I guess, the female's role was in the home and the man's role was outside. And so my grandmother was, uh, and my mother were a little bit different because they were, you know, public figures. My grandmother owned the grocery store. My mother helped run it. So, but she stayed mainly inside because outside the men were freer to to tell stories and to be a little cruder, I guess, and to to be a little more free. They restrained themselves inside when around my grandmother, but they didn't hold back when I was out there. And it was right next to a highway or country road, and I watched all the traffic go by, and people would stop and buy gas and Cokes and, and, and groceries and stuff. So I became sort of a, a community child. I think people set out on the front porch, you know, even in urban environments. They set out and watched the, the flow of the community. Probably before air conditioning, that was an issue. You'd sit out in the evenings and wave at your neighbors or go over and talk to them, and everybody would walk up and down the street. Front porches ha- engendered more of a community spirit than they do now because we've got air conditioning and you come home and you go inside and you don't sit on the front porch anymore. Kentucky home front, uh, the home front porch was sort of a metaphor, you know, for a sense of community where we'd have musicians and storytellers come on the front porch and sit there and share their stories and share their music and develop a sense of community around the front porch. So you grew up in Ragland, is that right? Yeah. And And I've been reading some of your stories that's a big part of the story. So what do you think is unique about growing up there that that helped you write the stories? Uh, the sense of community. At one point, it had a big general store. It was on a road called Ogden Landing Road. And in that area, there's a lot of roads that have landing in the names of it because that was the way before highways or before superhighways, the rivers were the, the main superhighways of the nation. All their economic activity and their travel and everything revolved around the river and the landings. Uh, If you had your goods, uh, you didn't haul them on the road to Paducah. You took them down to the river in a wagon and, you know, steamboats would pull over and and see what you had and buy it. And that was the the main uh, farm-to-market method in that that area was uh, the rivers. I guess in the early 1900s, there was a large grocery store there called Covington Brothers Grocery. The grocery stores of that day served multi-purposes. It was a post office, and it had a doctor's office in it. I think at one time it had a dentist's office in it, and it was a, had a cream separator there, and that's where farmers brought their milk in to have the cream separated. And it was a grocery store and served multiple functions. And later years went by, um, after the war and stuff, they contracted with my grandfather to come manage the store. That That's one thing that makes it unique, but uh, I lived on Ogden Landing Road. Well, how did you get involved with the Corn Island Storytelling Festival? My wife had always wanted to be a teacher. We met in college, and after we got married, she started working in various jobs, accounting jobs and secretarial jobs and stuff, decided that she really wanted to go back to college. 
and she started at uh, Jefferson Community College here in, in Louisville and uh, some English. She wanted to be an English teacher and took a, a several English classes. And one of the classes, there was a, a Lee Pennington and Joy Pennington were both professors there. She came in one day and said, you know, I've got a professor that runs a, a storytelling classes and he's having them at the malls on Sunday afternoons. And I thought, you know, this is something you might be interested in. So I did. I showed up at the uh, storytelling classes to teach you how to be a storyteller. And uh, I showed up at the second class. The assignment for the first class had been, well, you're going to have to tell a story. So think about it. And I thought well, that since I'd missed the first class, I was going to be exempt, but I wasn't. <laughs> and so, so what they, they, the exercise was, they had two sacks, and each sack had a uh, strip of paper that they'd written words on. And the idea was you reach in each sack and grab two pieces of paper, one from each sack, and look at the words on them. And then you had like five minutes to figure out a story incorporating those two words. I remember I got a bouquet of roses and a sack of potatoes. You know, within five minutes, I made a fairy tale story about a dirt poor farmer boy that fell in love with this beautiful girl, but he didn't have anything to give her. You know, at that time you were in the courting process, you were supposed to bring gifts and to show your interest, and he didn't have anything. And the only thing he had was some potatoes left over from the harvest. So he put them in a sack and left them on her doorstep and knocked and, and took off running. He was embarrassed. And the next day, she saw him in the village told him profusely how much she loved what he brought her and went on and on and on. And he was, he was a little bit mystified and asked, you know, I didn't think bag of potatoes would be that big a deal. And she goes, no, there was a bouquet of roses in that bag when I opened it. So that was my first story. (laughs) (laughs) And since then, you know, I uh, immediately when I found out I was an engineer and I could fix or do anything. I mean, they were producing the Corn Island Storytelling Festival and got me involved in it made me instantly made me technical director of the the Corn Island Storytelling Festival. In that, by the way, in that first class was a lady named Roberta Brown. And Roberta Brown has since written 13 books. And I hire Roberta. In fact, I hired her to be on the this year's Black Acre Corn Island Storytelling Festival. I've, over the years, when I produce a festival or something, a lot of times, if, especially if it's a ghost tales, because she specializes in ghost stories, I would hire Roberta. And one of those things, I introduced her as the queen of cold-blooded tales. <laughs> and uh, she liked that so much, and her editor liked it so much, they made it the title of her second or third <laughs> oh, book. Oh, wow. <laughs> they need to be paying you some uh, <laughs> royalties. Right, some royalties. <laughs> I, I have asked her about that. But. So what do you think? makes a good story what do you think is needed a good story is uh it's the same genre as a short story first of all you have to have a good character that the audience can relate to or a setting that they can relate to or hopefully both you know or that somebody in the audience "Ah, i've had that emotion or i i know somebody like that or that's part of me or yes I, i grew up in that area you know Something relatable. So you have to have the character, the setting uh, right up front. Um, Then you have to build the drama, uh, introduce the conflict, and then build the drama around the conflict, and then resolve the conflict. Humor always helps to make it more palatable. The difference between uh, the written story and uh, an oral presentation is the fact that 
you have to do everything almost at once in a verbal story. In the first sentence, you have to introduce the conflict, the character, the setting just right up front So, because you really don't have time. And most people's attention span uh, is the length of a music video. You can at most stretch that out to maybe a 10-minute story. You know, and that would translate to somewhere maybe thirteen to fifteen hundred words, somewhere in that range. So you have to get everything set up right in the beginning of a story, and then build the drama. Otherwise, it's a joke. You know, a minute and a half story is a joke, really. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the reason that you have to be so concise, and is because you can never afford to lose the interest, even for a few seconds, of the listener, which is different from a book, from reading. A short story, you can read something, and then and you can sort of get lost or wander and then come back and reread the sentence and say, well, no, who was that? Where was this at? And, and go back and take your time. Well, in a story, if they miss something, main character or the conflict or something, they won't know how to react at the end of the story. It'll, you know, it's gone. So you have to be very careful about making sure that your character is strong, your setting strong, and they understand the conflict right up front. The rest of it is, is like a short story. So it seems like with a storytelling festival, though, that there would be almost a performance part of it. So could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, um, the performance part is uh, is get the audience's attention. You know, that's the first thing you have to do. So Mark Twain would walk out on stage and just stand there for about 30 or 45 seconds and not say anything and just look at the audience. And, and they may be talking or something, and now you got some guy on stage standing there and not saying anything, and the, the audience would get quiet and focus their attention on you. So tricks of the trade of a storyteller, you need to get their attention. Uh, you can't always stand on stage uh, silent for a minute or a minute and yeah. a half. So, so mostly humor is a really good thing. So say something when you get on stage. Um, the, your first line, uh, besides introducing the character in conflict, if you can get them to laugh then that gets their attention. And then you know that after you got their attention at a high point, you've got to introduce details of the story that's going to bore them a little bit. Details that they need to know, but you can't make every uh, every line a, a punchline or a funny line. You have to interject details of the story so that they understand it, but you understand it that their interest level is sort of going down. And before it gets to a point where they tune you out and start looking around the tent or room or wherever you are, you have to do something else to get their attention back up. Another funny line or another, there are various uh, theatrical things you can do movement is one of them you know you can your facial expressions or your hand expressions or moving across the stage can refocus their attention back on your story it's a lot of theater involved in the presentation not only just standing up there that's the reason reading a story is totally different from standing in front of them and being animated and and eye contact try to make sure that if the lights are not too bright, that you pick somebody out in the audience and go from one to the other so that during your presentation, hopefully everybody in the in the whole audience thinks they were looking right at me. You know, they were talking to me uh, during that presentation, and that keeps their attention too. With the Corn Island Festival, do you focus on a certain theme every year, or is it generally, I know you're doing it in October, and it's usually in the fall, is it always creepy ghost stories? What well, do you do? Uh, the progression is simply because of marketability of stories. That's the reason my first book was initially going to be marketed as a ghost story book, because you can have a storytelling event, 
and advertise it and, uh, you know, broadly on, uh, and spend a lot of money on advertising. And you might get 50 people there. If you advertise it as ghost stories and have it at night, you'll have 200 people there. <laughs> you know, for some reason, people just want to hear ghost stories, especially in the fall around Halloween. My own theory of that is that there are very few people that have seen ghosts, but they want to listen to other people who they think have seen ghosts and had experiences with them. In case they ever do, they'll know how to react. The reason that we have a, a ghost story event is simply because it's uh, the most popular form of short story. So do you have a favorite story that you like to tell audiences? Well, I do, but that's the problem with having so many stories. I mean, over the years doing this radio show for 18 years, I have a repertory of around 200, 250 stories. The earlier stories are longer, 10, I can even stretch them to 15 minutes, which really stretches the your ability to hold an audience. And I, I guess the type of story you tell depends on the audience. And really the bread and butter of a professional storyteller is schools. So if you're going to a school and you're telling uh, stories to first or second graders, you'll pick one type of story. If you're t telling to third or fourth or fifth graders, you're telling another type of story. And if you're telling to high school kids, you're telling another. But to, to answer your question, I do have probably a favorites list of maybe 10 or 12 stories, and, and according to the time frame, too. If you're only given five minutes or six minutes, I've got those kind of stories. Or if you've got more time, I've got longer stories that are more fun and stuff. The um, radio show um, uh, typically had about four and a half minutes, it, which is the same as a, about a song. And that translates somewhere between five and 600 words. So what I would do is I would just write the story as it came to me. And, and generally, that would be around 1,300 or 1,500 words. And then I would start condensing it down to get it down to, to five or 600 words and at first I sort of graded at that idea of limiting me to the four and a half minutes but actually what happened was that it made the story tighter you know it, it yeah I took out some details but I was able to put some of them back in and it just got it really down to the bare bones and the nuts and bolts there was nothing that that I could take out at that point but it was it was a tight story and then when I could expand it back out and take some of this other stuff and put it back, now it was put back on a much stronger framework than where I started out. So with the Corn Island Festival, what's going to be going on? <clears throat> How many storytellers do you have? What can people expect if they go? Well, um, the storytelling is on a Saturday night. Black Acre is going to have events all day on Friday and have school kids come in. Uh, and they've got reenactors. Blackacre is part of one of the original 1700 Revolutionary War land-grant farms, and it was several hundred acres. And uh, now I think it's administered by a conservancy program, the state of Kentucky. They're going to have muskets and a cannon and reenactors and food booths and stuff set up on Friday. And my part of the event is I'll, I'll produce the, uh, the ghost tales part that's going to be there on Saturday night. What they do is they, uh, they have a, a large tent, probably capable of seating three, 400 people, on the backside of the old 1700s barn that was built. It's just an amazing old structure, and you walk through that and then go out on the other side, and there's the, the tent, and we'll have a stage. My headliner is a guy I've known for years and years, uh, was at the Corn Island Storytelling Festival back in the 90s, I believe, Bobby Norfolk 
from St. Louis and just an amazing storyteller. He's won Emmys and he's just, he's really great. And Roberta Brown's going to be on the show. Roberta, uh, first time back for her because about two or three years ago, she lost her voice and had to retire from telling stories. And within the last year, she's got it back. I'm going to tell some stories. I'll probably do a 20-minute set. And then I've got Barb and Bob that are uh, musicians. She she wrote and conducted the uh, ghost walks in LaGrange for a number of years. So those are the storytellers that we're going to have on the program. And farm wagon set up there and bales of hay in front of it for kids uh, to sit on right in front of the stage and then behind that we've got seating and then people bring blankets and things and put on the ground outside the tent and at the back of the tent and we've structured it so that the first half of the program before we do intermission are ghost stories but they're not really scary you know they're not blood dripping give kids nightmare stories barb and bob are going to do some songs that'll go along with their stories and then after intermission we warn the audience you know i'm not saying that we'll give you nightmares but there's there's going to be scary stories after that and what time does it start 7 30 and it runs about how long Generally, it's over by 9.30. It'll or about 45 minutes to an hour set, then a 15 or 20-minute intermission, and come back and do a similar set. So 10 o'clock at the latest. Before we actually started recording, you told us a really interesting story about how Corn Island Storytelling Festival got its name. Could you sure. tell our audience about that? Well, Corn Island was the original name for, for the settlement of Louisville. And uh, I guess with the George Rogers Clark, uh, the expedition out to the wrestled the western forts away from the British right around the Revolutionary War, Uh, his band of soldiers came down the river, and before they stopped at the island that was right out from where the the Belle of Louisville docks, it was a rather large island. And in fact, it was the last piece of land that you could safely get to before you went over the falls. So they decided to stop there for the summer and uh, plant crops primarily corn, and provision themselves for their military expedition on further west. During the course of that summer, the settlement grew quite a bit with uh, support people and wives, and the expedition that next year took off and went went over and captured Fort uh, Cahoka and Kaskaskia, I believe, from the, from the British. The people that were left uh, living on the island decided that, it was yes, it was secure from Native American attack and everything, but it was sort of inconvenient so that for transportation and, and getting supplies and stuff out there. So they moved over to the south bank of the river. They named the island, uh, since they'd grown the uh, crop there to provision the troops, they named it Corn Island. The main settlement of Louisville, I guess originally then was Corn Island, but then they named it later for the King Louis and called it Louisville. Over the years, uh, it was owned by a private company. It was quarried for the stone on it. Uh, got lower and lower in the water as they took the stone away. And then uh, Corps of Engineers, when they dammed the river back in the early 20s and 30s, then raised the river level. It's underwater now. I reserved your hitchhiker book yes. from the library. And I have my daughter, when we're driving, if I need to remember something, like to pick up a book mm-hmm. from the library, I will ask her to jot down something on a notepad for me. So I said, write down, pick up Hitchhiker. <laughs> and she looked at me like I was nuts. And so I did pick up Hitchhiker. The stories that you have in that book are autobiographical, a lot of them, yes. at least the ones that I've gotten to. Right, right. So do you read memoirs? 
Yes, I do. On your own, is that a favorite genre for you? It is. I do a lot of historical memoirs, you know, like Churchill, a project that I've got down the road. I'm working on a third book now that the University of Press of Kentucky asked me to do, a novel about um, a character set in World War One. So I've been reading a lot of military history memoirs about that. Uh, but I do enjoy, I do enjoy fiction. So how is the process of writing your stories for a book different than the storytelling aspect. So were a lot of these stories in your book first stories that you told in front of an audience and then put into a book, or did you write them for the book? Uh, Some of them were, yes. Some of these stories in in Hitchhiker go way back. Uh, Roberta Brown, um, there was one time I I hired Roberta to do ghost stories out in a, a small town, and we were together, and we were sitting backstage talking, and she, by that time, she was a very successful author, and she'd written 10 or 11 books, and 30 years of her life, she was a teacher. She wagged her finger at me and said, Bob Thompson, I've known you for years and years and years. You've got more stories than anybody. You ought to write a book. <laughs> and I'm with the best publisher I ever had in my life is University Press of Kentucky. It's instead of all those state universities having their own publishing companies, they all go together and fund one, and it's called University Press of Kentucky. I'm going to call them Monday morning and tell them about you, and you call them Tuesday, you know, wagged her finger about me, and I said, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am. <laughs> so I did. I called the University Press, their uh, acquisitions manager, and they said, yes, Roberta's, uh, Roberta's told us about you, and yet we'd like to see uh, some stories. And so I sent them uh, some stories, and some of those were some of my original stories. And they came back and said, okay, yeah, we like these. We'd like to see a manuscript from you, 30,000 words. A couple of things, just words of advice. And he was, he was really friendly. He said, we want you to succeed. It's an academic press, too. So if you could make your stories about Kentucky, and you're from western Kentucky, so, you know, we, we don't have a great deal of authors from western Kentucky. So we would like for it to be western Kentucky-centric, and that would make it much more likely that you'll get approval from the editorial board. And I said, Okay. He said, and the second thing is that it's your first book, and collections of short stories sell best if they're collections of ghost stories. And I said, yeah, I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I related my experiences with the festivals and, and, and drawing crowds. I started trying to go back through all my, my repertory of stories. I got looking at what I had, and it was like, 12,000 words. So then I thought, okay, let me go back through all my stories and figure out if any of them have a setting where I could make them ghost stories or have a sort of a spiritual element in them, an other dimensional. I'm really not into blood dripping. Uh, Stephen King is not one of my favorite authors. You know, I've read The Stand, sort of gives me the creeps. And so, I, <laughs> you know, so I wasn't going to be, I went, and I wasn't going to be a Roberta Brown kind of writer. And I, I thought, okay, let me, let me see what I can do. And I took uh, several stories and changed them up a little bit and gave them that, that are already had a, a little bit of a mystical element to them and added to that and made them a little more mystical and, and gave them 30,000 words. And one of the reviewers said, you know, this is really good. I really like it, but it's too short. We would like you to add another 5,000 words to the book. I said, oh, geez, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm tapped out on ghost stories here. <laughs> you know, I, uh, so I wrote a couple more stories, uh, ghost stories, fresh. Let me go back and look at those notes, little things that from, from the past that were a little bit strange, and notes that I'd taken through the years. So I wrote a couple more stories and sent that off to them. One of them said, you know, this is, this is really good, but I think it would benefit from an um, introductory chapter. 
And it was like, oh, geez. All right, yeah. <laughs> this I'm, is I'm, more work I'm, than you thought it was a lot be. of work. I'm, you know, I'm a year and a half, two years into this, and now you want another 3,000 words for an introductory chapter. <laughs> okay, okay. And it was the best thing that happened because when I started writing the introductory chapter, I realized that there was a narrative thread with just a little more effort. I could build a narrative thread into the whole book that sort of tied the whole thing together, transitioned from a collection of short stories to a fictional narrative. And it became almost like a story in itself. I set the thing up in the beginning and then sort of build the drama with each story. And then at the end, you give it a little twist and tie it all back together. And it's, it was a fictional memoir at that point. Gave the, the work a whole lot more cohesion. We're going to call it Hitchhiker, which was, I think, about the fourth or fifth story in the book. I uh, bought a Volkswagen van and took off across country, and it threw a rod through the block on the top of the Continental Divide, and I just kept going, Hitchhike, and had a mystical experience, and they want to call it Hitchhiker. I said, okay. And then they said, and stories from the Kentucky Homefront. I said, well, you realize Kentucky Homefront's the name of my radio show. And they said, yeah, we know that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, good. (laughs) So actually, my name for the book was going to be Front Porch Stories. Uh, because I got a picture of the old fellows uh, sitting on the, the bench in my grandmother's country grocery store, and that was what I was going to have as the title. But, you know, Hitchhiker Stories from the Kentucky Homefront fit real well. I know you have another book coming out soon. Yes. How, how is it different? It's not ghost stories. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd exhausted my supply. Well, what I did is I take the same approach to um, putting my stories together as uh, I've taken in everything else in my life. I sort of have an engineering aspect to it. So I took all the stories that I had and I put them in a spreadsheet and I put columns of who are the characters, what time frame is it, what's it about, family stories, is it a scary story? And then I worked it that way. turns out it's the same uh, chronological flow as the first book. It starts out in early life down in Raglan and then progresses off to college and then it, a working career and then family and then you know, up to the present date. So I, I put it all together like that. Whatever age of the reader, they can find something in the book. I have lived sort of a colorful life. I've traveled a lot. I Right out of college, uh, I was influenced by Hemingway and Michener and, and Running of the Bulls. I guess those are my, my influences. And right out of college, my grandmother at the grocery store, when I graduated, she took the longest trip of her life. She came to the University of Kentucky and watched me graduate, uh, get a mechanical engineering degree, and handed me an envelope. As it turns out, she had taken $20, a $20 bill every month, and put it in the envelope from the day I started college. And five years later, uh, she gave me this envelope and had $1,200 in it. When I looked at it, I was like, wow, thank you, Granny. And she said, well, what are you going to do with it? And I thought a minute, and I said, I think I'm going to hitchhike across Europe. <laughs> that was a surprise on her Yeah, part. it was not something that she had considered. <laughs> it was more like, you know, she thought, well, you're going to buy a car, or you're going to... And it's like, okay. <laughs> and I did. I, uh, I got a discount airline ticket and flew to uh, Amsterdam and 
and took off hitchhiking and, and ran with the bulls and spent that summer in Europe. And I went down to Greece and Spain and France and Germany, all over Central Europe and, and as far east as close to Turkey, North Africa and Spain, and had college loans to pay off and came back and started to work. And I didn't get a chance to go back until uh, in 1998, all my frequent flyer miles started taking the family to Europe. My wife and my son, and uh, we've done it 13 times or so. I've, I've traveled a lot. <laughs> so you also have a radio show. Yes. So tell us what that's all about. Kentucky Homefront. John Gage started it uh, as a way to promote the arts, specifically musicians. Back, gosh, in the 80s and 90s, he had a show for about 12 years or so, and then he took a break, started back up in 2001, and at that point decided he wanted a storyteller and had several storytellers on the show, and uh, he and I struck up a really good relationship. I'd been on the show in the previous iteration of it, and I started writing dialogue for the show, which I wasn't really great at, but I said, you know, how about if I just tell a story on for each show? And we do a live show in front of a live audience, uh, the second Saturday of every month. We do a one-hour show, and uh, the one-hour show consists of a local musical group doing a 25-minute set. Then I'll come on and do a four-and-a-half-minute story. We'll give the, the live audience an intermission and come back and have a second musical group that will do another 25-minute set, and that'll wind up just around 55 minutes so what was needed for a radio show. And we've been doing that now for about 18 years. And WFPK, is several years ago, they moved us to an 8 o'clock on Saturday morning slot. It was a good move. It in, uh, increased our viewership. Demographics of it have turned out really well, so it kept us on for, for a long time. And we try to promote the arts and, and musicians and storytellers. It's it's amazing how many musicians, especially, and storytellers over the years have told us, you know, said it really launched my career because now I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be on the radio. I've got to get my act together, and it makes them take a step up professionally. One of the things that we always do that some other shows, I guess, uh, haven't done or don't do is that we always pay our, our musicians or anybody that performs on the shows you get a paycheck we have to write grants we do fundraisers we take the uh, gate receipt but we, we we feel that it strengthens the community makes a sense of community for people coming together and listening to music on the porch it makes louisville a more attractive place for artists for musicians you know you can come to louisville and if you can get on the kentucky home front uh, and heard by you know an audience of ten thousand or more uh, then you'll start getting more gigs and so we feel like that it really has improved the, the arts community around Louisville all the years we've been doing it. Well, Colonel Bob, this has been really interesting. You've got your finger in lots of different, <laughs> lots of different pots. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. back and Carrie and I are going to talk a little bit about what we've been reading. So Carrie, what's, what are you reading? (laughs) (laughs) I felt like there was going to be more to it than that, Amy. No, no. Okay. So I just finished a book last night that actually ties in nicely with what we talked about with Colonel Bob about ghostly stories. So the book is called The Night Gardener by Jonathan Oxier, and it is set in 
England, and it's kind of this mystical uh, house. There's something going on with this house. So these two orphan children, brother and sister, Molly and Kip, they come to this house uh, to work. They're going to be servants. We, we don't really know at the beginning of the story what's happened to their parents, but they go to this house and they begin working for the Windsor family. And they notice that there's this gigantic tree that is right up next to the house and is actually growing inside the house. So you know very early on that this tree is an important part of the story and possibly a character in the story. So Molly and Kip start doing their work as servants and at night they realize, well, Molly keeps finding leaves on the floor and and footprints, like muddy footprints, and she can't understand where these are coming from. So they discover that there is this creature, this man who comes at night. And we, at first we can't really figure out if he's creating bad dreams for the Windsor family or if he just takes whatever bad dreams they're already having and he takes their tears from these bad dreams and their sweat from these bad dreams and he uses that to tend to the tree. So it's kind of ghostly. You don't really understand what this gardener, what his purpose is, why he keeps doing that. But Molly notices that there is a picture, a painting on the wall of the Windsor family, and they all look, you know, rosy colored cheeks and their hairs, their natural color. But the Windsor family, as they are now, they're very pale and they're very gaunt and their hair is a, a different color. So I won't tell you too much more about what happens, but it is a really great story. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's not like super scary. It's a book for kids. So it, it's geared for kids and it's one that I've already told my... But middle grade, middle grade, right? Yes, middle grade. Mm -hmm. Yes. Although my youngest son is nine, almost 10, and I think he would be fine reading it. It reminds um, me a little bit, just with the tree part of... Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. There's the mm -hmm. there's the Whomping Woods, I right. think it's called. Right. But then also in Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. they're mm -hmm. I can't remember what they're called now, but the 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 Ents. The, the Ents. The yep. trees mm -hmm. that are asleep and then come awake. Yes. So that's what that Yeah, it's very me cool. And at the back of the book, there's a, an author's note and he talks about how he, this story of the night gardener, he was basically working on this idea in this book for like 9 years. But he said that what developed his love of these creepy stories was the Ray Bradbury book, uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes. Oh, yes. So that is on my uh, TBR list. It's and mine so... as well. For, but I wanted to wait until closer to Halloween. Because oh, okay. I like reading okay. those kind of books around Halloween. Well, I might go ahead and pick it up because of it sort of really inspired me. The, reading this Night Gardener, I thought, wow, if, if he was inspired to write this book because of that story, I definitely need to check it out. So uh, I definitely give four, four and a half stars to the night oh, gardener. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So how about you? What are you reading? Well, our book club, our selection this month uh, was... It was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it was Carrie's. It was Carrie's, it it. Was Carrie's <laughs> pick. Uh, but the book that we did this month was uh, A Walk in the Woods by Bill Bryson. 
And this is not a new book by any means. It was written in 1998, which is 21 years, which I know because my son's birthday is in 1998. So, it, you know, it's been around quite a while. And I read it many years ago. I don't know that I read it when it first came out, but it's been probably 15 years ago that I read it. And I remember just really, really loving it. And so then when you picked it again, I'm not a big rereader, but I definitely thought I'm going to reread this one because I remember loving it so much. It's a travel memoir. And Bill Bryson is a writer. He's originally from Iowa. He lived in England for quite a while, came back to the United States to be a professor at Dartmouth for a while. And so this book happens while he's at Dartmouth. So he lives very close to the beginning of the Appalachian Trail and decides, hey, why not hike it? He used to like to take an occasional hike or walk when he was in England and thought, you know, the Appalachian Trail is um, a very iconic American system. So he is nervous about going by himself. He's lucky enough, maybe lucky, I don't know, (laughs) to get one of his friends from high school who he hadn't seen in many, many years to do it with him. What he doesn't know until his friend arrives is that his friend is out of shape, overweight, has to eat every hour or he says that he has Yeah, and it's fits. stuff like Little Debbie's. Yes, no, nothing healthy. And so they are going to hike the Appalachian Trail. The other thing about this book is that it's super funny, or at least I think it's super funny. There were passages in it that are like laugh out loud. I was crying. Page 19. That's all I'll say. <laughs> Page 19, my daughter, when I was reading it, she came into my room because she thought I was crying. And I was crying, but it was because I was laughing so hard. So if you read this book, page 19, that's my favorite. So what I remembered about reading this book when I read it many years ago was just how funny it was. What I did not remember is really it's almost like two books. There's the there's the part of them hiking the Appalachian Trail, but also he digresses in many instances to tell you the history of the Appalachian Trail or to tell you about the flora and the fauna and different things. And that part is much more didactic. And I had forgotten about part and I enjoyed that part but there were certainly times where I maybe skimmed it just a little but in the discussion with our book club it was really mixed reviews which surprised me because I thought everyone was really gonna love this book a lot of people who loved it there were quite a few people who were mixed about it I think they enjoyed the travel memoir part they didn't enjoy the more factual factual educational part of it and thought that was a little slow and boring but then there were even a couple people who did not think it was funny at all which surprised me and also that they thought that the author bill bryson had sort of a pompous air to him and i can see that i can see why they say that i didn't take it that way i guess to me he balanced out the areas where maybe he was a little full of himself with a lot of self-deprecating humor. And to me, when you kind of have both of them, it uh, equals out. You love Bill Bryson. <laughs> you love Bill Bryson. I admit, I, I really do. He's one of my favorite authors. I have read, I haven't read everything he's written, but I've probably read 75% of what he's written. And I guess I just like his type of humor. He's written many other travel memoirs. He's written one where he's in Australia. He's written one where he's hiked across Europe. And they all sort of have that same humor style. So I guess I would say if you read if you read A Walk in the Woods and you didn't care for it, you probably are not going to like his other ones either. This book 
though, did remind me of two other books that aren't funny, but if you like a book about hiking or traveling, there was a book several years ago by Cheryl Strayed called Wild. And this one is a much more serious book about hiking. It's a memoir as well. And she hikes the Pacific Crest uh, Trail by herself as a woman. And she is more on a self-searching mission to try to figure out who she is and to work through some bad memories or bad situations that, that she had been in. And I highly recommend that one. The other one that it makes me think about is a book that I listened to on audio recently. It's a Stephen King book called The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. And it's not horror. Um, it's a little creepy, but it's about a little girl who's hiking in the Maine woods with her mother and brother, and she gets separated from them. She's preteen, so I, th- I can't remember. I think she's 10 or 11. And so she is on her own in the woods and has to survive there for, I think it's close to two weeks. It's like 10 days to two weeks. And the creepy part of the book is that even though there aren't any probably real monsters in this book, she has to survive. And that's a scary thing, but also all the fears that she has in her head. I didn't appreciate it as much, I think, until I read A Walk in the Woods and Bill Bryson expounds a lot about all the dangers of hiking. That all the things train. that can kill you. <laughs> all the things that can kill you and hiking in the on the Appalachian Trail. And it made me think about this other book by S- Stephen King. So those are my other two book recommendations that are somewhat related to the walk in the woods if that's something that you like we're gonna take a break and then we're gonna do colonel bob's top five we are back in the studio with colonel bob thompson and we are going to be asking him his top Five. So, Colonel Bob, you have talked about being just traveling all over the world. What place have you visited that you feel is underrated or that people don't appreciate and maybe don't go to, but that you think that they would enjoy? Probably uh, the top of that list would be northern Spain. And the reason is uh, there's, I think 90% of it is controlled by the government as a a national park. And the Pyrenees, uh, the major geological boundary between France and Spain, they don't stop when France stops. They continue uh, coming west all the way over to the the top of Portugal. And there's a thin strip of land, maybe 15 or 20 miles wide north between the uh, the mountains and the Bay of Biscay, but the, that, that coast faces up toward Ireland. It is greener than Kentucky. It's verdant. I mean, most people think of Spain and they think of arid and, and getting down close to Africa and central Madrid is, is super hot, such that, you know, the people developed almost a night culture. They did siestas during the middle of the day because it was just, just too, too hot, hot to do business. Mm-hmm. The north coast of Spain is just a, a strip all the way from uh, from where it joins France all the way over to the top of Portugal. is just uh, underdeveloped. There's no big hotels. There's no big ports there. So it's not on any ports of call or cruise ships and uh, it's just underdeveloped and and I really enjoy it Uh, and well I got a cousin that lives there because (laughs) that doesn't hurt either it doesn't hurt either she runs a a wine tasting tour agency that 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 runs tours in uh, all over Europe and in South America and 
she's from California, and she married an Irish boy. They have a couple of kids, and 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 just loved it. They're just it's straight across from Ireland. If you go south from Ireland, you you wind up on the north coast of Spain. It's just gorgeous there. And we've been there two or three times, and just green mountains and the ocean, and it's just beautiful. So. I would add something to this. A place that I have been, and I wouldn't necessarily say it's underrated because I people do go there. It's in Canada, and I would say Quebec City. And I say that when people think of Canada, they think of Toronto and Montreal. But Quebec City, which is it's not tiny, but it's not big either, is beautiful. Everybody speaks French there. It's hard to find someone who speaks English. And it feels European. It's, a, it's an old, walled city. And... I feel like it is a great place to go if you really have a hankering to go to Europe but don't have the money to do it because you can get a fairly cheap flight for three to four hundred dollars uh, round trip to there as opposed to a thousand or more to go to Europe. It feels like a very old city there. You can stay very reasonably slightly outside um, the walls. We stayed in an Airbnb and it was very cute. There was a little French bakery right across the street that had the most amazing croissants that you've ever had. Um, There's a little island that you can take a little bridge over to and you can do a tour in a car all the way around the island and you just stop. There's little cheese shops, there's little wine shops, there's cideries, little chocolate shops. It's just just a really great, cute little place and I don't think enough people know about it. So our next question to you, Bob, is you're a native of Western Kentucky. What's a top place that you would tell people that they should visit in that part of the state if they've never been there? Probably Paducah. And the the, the area is a water wonderland. I mean, it's uh, the Ohio River hits the Mississippi River. Tennessee and Cumberland River have been dammed and forming some of the largest artificial lakes in the world, Lake Cumberland and Lake Kentucky. So there's all sorts of resorts on the lakes. Uh, uh, the state park system has two there, uh, Lake Barkley Resort and Kentucky uh, State Dam Park. <laughs> it's just a, a wonderful area for water recreation. Paducah has done an amazing turnaround. It was a, a river town. They had a, an area called uh, Lower Town, which was the original settlement of uh, Paducah, and it was uh, maybe a 26-block area. Some really nice old houses because it was the original part of, of Paducah, and they came up with a plan to draw more people in there, and what they, they wanted an artist community. And they worked with a bank and the city budget, and they uh, they came up with an idea that they would sell these grand old houses that were deteriorating to artists for a pittance, five dollars, ten dollars, or something, and they were provide a low interest, in some cases no interest at all, uh, for loans for renovating them. And the only thing that you, the artists uh, have to do was uh, be a producing artist. They didn't have to have a gallery, although many of them uh, later did. But you know, you got basically a free old house in in, in downtown Paducah, um, interest-free loans to fix it up. It was it's been wildly successful, used as a national model. They've got more than seventy producing artists that came in there over the years, and uh, it's got galleries. It's right next to the Quilt Museum, which is uh, internationally known. Uh, they've got quilting classes. Uh, the university is taking it up. It now has ceramics and art. Uh, associates degrees and so Paducah is just a, a vibrant little town it's especially an arts town now I did not know that that makes me want to take a little trip down to Paducah I know I, our book club has started doing an annual 
retreat once a right. year. So we might need to add that to our list of places to go because that sounds wonderful. It's called the Lower Town Arts District in Paducah, and it's just wonderful. Now they've got a new uh, performing arts center there right on the river, too, $7 million, and it's amazing. So our next question is that a lot of your stories have a spiritual or ghost element. So what is the top thing that scares you? I'm not really afraid of anything, but there's some things I just don't do. <laughs> I love airplanes and I've jumped out of airplanes and uh, I don't like to ride roller coasters. Me either. <laughs> and, and it's because I understand too much about them. I understand how they're made and I understand how they're maintained. And, and and they're made for thrill seekers, you know, and they're made usually one off. In fact, that's a big marketing thing. You'll never find anything else like it in the world. And so so for, to me, what I hear is, so you haven't had a long track history and you haven't worked <laughs> the bugs out of this thing yet, you know. <laughs> So the thing that scares me, I cannot watch movies that have anything to do with catastrophic, apocalyptic things. So like, I have not read the book, but I've seen the movie On the Beach, and it freaked me out for like months. And then there's a movie called Melancholia, and it's about this end of the world situation and I watched that and it freaked me out for months. So I can read like one of my favorite books, Alas Babylon, which is kind of this dire, not end of the world, but getting there type book. I can read the books fine, but I cannot watch movies about that. So that's that's something that scares me. We've talked about the Corn Island Festival and this time of year is full of different kinds of festivals. So what is your top festival food? I thought about this one. I had beer. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe wine. (laughs) You mean you're not ordering those uh, deep fried butter Twinkies Twinkies or anything? No, no, I'm not. (laughs) You haven't eaten the burger made out of a a Krispy Kreme donut? You haven't eaten one of those? No, or fried Snickers. All right, so our last top five question is, do you have a top storyteller that when you get the opportunity to hear that person tell a story, you always really enjoy it? Oh, there are several. You know, Donald Davis comes to mind from North Carolina. Bill Lapp is, is just funny, as, uh, as you can imagine. Barbara McBride-Smith, that she's been around for years and years, and I, I really love those uh, a lot of times you can catch them at various festivals around, but they'll always make you laugh and they'll always make you think about things. Uh, and I have to say, Bobby Norfolk that I'm having here for Corn Island is one of the best that I've ever seen. I just love uh, his stories and his theatrics on stage. And once we had him at, a, at an old cemetery, we had an old transformer. It was from the 20s or 30s, and we got the city to hook it up. In the middle of his story, the transformer went out. All the lights on stage and all the lights in the audience went out, and Bobby didn't miss a beat. He kept up with his story. He even incorporated something about the light, and the lights went out (laughs) in a ghost story. You know, and I just thought, wow, what a professional. And he's really like that, Bobby Norfolk. Well, Colonel Bob, it has been great to have you here. You are full 
of stories of all kinds. <laughs> Scared <laughs> me there, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for being with us today. You're more than welcome. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.